0: Joshua chapter 9, we're going to read the entire chapter. So let's let's begin. And it came to pass when all the kings which were on this side Jordan, in the hills and in the valleys, and in all the coasts of the great sea over against Lebanon, the Hittite and the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzite, the Hivite and the Jebusite heard thereof, that they gathered themselves together to fight with Joshua and with Israel with one accord. And when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done unto Jericho and to Ai, they did work wily and went and made as if they had been ambassadors and took old sacks upon their asses and wine bottles, old and rent and bound up, and old shoes and clouted upon their feet and old garments upon them, and all the bread of their provision was dry and moldy. And they went to Joshua unto the camp at Gilgal, and said unto him, and to the men of Israel, We be from a far country, now therefore make ye a league with us. And the men of Israel said unto the Hivites, Peradventure ye dwell among us, and how shall we make a league with you? And they said unto Joshua, We are thy servants. And Joshua said unto them, Who are ye, and from whence come ye? And they said unto him, From a very far country thy servants are come, because of the name of the Lord thy God. For we have heard the fame of him and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, to Sihon king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, which was at Ashtaroth. Wherefore our elders and all the inhabitants of our country spake to us, saying, Take victuals with you for the journey, and go to meet them, and say unto them, We are your servants, therefore make ye a league with us. This our bread we took, hot for our provision, out of our houses on the day we came forth to go unto you. But now, behold, it is dry and it is moldy. And these bottles of wine which we filled were new. And behold, they be rent, and these our garments and our shoes are become old by reason of the very long journey. The men took of their victuals and asked not counsel at the mouth of the Lord. And Joshua made peace with them and made a league with them to let them live. And the princes of the congregation swear unto them. And it came to pass at the end of three days, after they had made a league with them, that they heard that they were their neighbors and that they dwelt among them. And the children of Israel journeyed and came unto their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon and Shepharah and Beeroth and kyrgyz And the children of Israel smote them not, because the princes of the congregation had sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. And all the congregation murmured against the princes, But all the princes said unto all the congregation, We have sworn unto them by the Lord God of Israel. Now therefore we may not touch them. This we will do to them. We will even let them live, lest wrath be upon us because of the oath which we swear unto them. And the princes said unto them, Let them live, but let them be hewers of wood and drawers of water unto all the congregation, as the princes had promised them. And Joshua called for them, and he spake unto them, saying, Wherefore have ye beguiled us, saying, We are very far from you, when ye dwell among us? Now therefore ye are cursed, and there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen, and hewers of wood, and drawers of water for the house of my God. And the answer Joshua said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Therefore we were sore afraid of our lives because of you and have done this thing now, behold, we are in thine hand, as it seemeth good and right unto thee to do unto us do. And so did he unto them, and delivered them out of the hand of the children of Israel, that they slew them not. And Joshua made them that day hewers of wood and drawers of water for the congregation, and for the altar of the Lord, even unto this day, in the place which he should choose. And let's pray. Father, we... Always, kind of a privilege to come and to study your Word. I pray that you would guide and direct in this study and bless your Word. May we glean the true meaning of it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, chapter eight was the the end of the destruction of the city of Ai, uh, shortly after the destruction of the city of Jericho, and understandably, word is spreading throughout the land of Canaan that Israel is coming through and they are going to be conquering anyone in their path. And so we have here in verse 1 this confederacy that is formed by several of the kings of, of several of the, of the people groups that are scattered across that region. And it's probably a little bit... Uh, kind of wonder why they haven't formed this confederacy before. But but nevertheless, they, they've seen firsthand that Ai and Jericho were not able to stand on their own. So they come up with a different strategy, and that is to unite together. In verse number two, uh, well, verse number one ends with that they had heard thereof. And, you know, there's uh, some question. what What is it that they heard? What is it that their primary concern was? Um, certainly, I, I think they had heard of the defeat of Ai and the defeat of Jericho. That's probably uh, somewhat of a given. But, but others think that there, maybe there's more to it than that. Um, back in chapter 8, the last six verses that we looked at, verses 30 through 35... Was where Joshua had gathered the people together on Mount Ebel and they had read the law, all of the law. They had gone over all of the blessings and the cursings, and some people believe that 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 also is part of what they heard thereof. That they had heard the the proclamation of God's word, and that they understood very clearly that that uh, what was read. Uh, sealed their fate, was, you know, their demise was imminent, that they were going to be destroyed. Uh, but nevertheless, they, they decide that, you know, unity, um, you know, the, the verse two ends there with one accord. They, def- they decide that, uh, unity is going to give them an advantage, uh, usually does, although when you're united against God, it doesn't matter how many you have in your group, you're, you're still bound to failure. But, uh, they see that, uh, Bethel had united with AI and yet you know it didn't work out for them. They had met their demise in chapter 8. So you know there's a there's a lesson there just in that that we need to be very careful who we ally with and I frequently think of the the statement that our that President George W. Bush made on the night of September 11th 2001 just about 12 hours after the the planes had flown into the World Trade Center when he said, we will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. And so that's a good lesson. You've got to be very careful who your allies are. And, you know, again, in chapter eight, we saw that that's, that's what led to, do, to the destruction of Bethel. They had united with AI. So the people of Gibeon, uh, they're, they've got a different strategy. You know, they, they decide they don't want to be part of this coalition. They don't want to be part of this group that is going to unite. They actually seem to demonstrate that they're a little bit smarter. They know that, uh, they're, they're going to meet their destruction. And so they they come up with a different strategy rather than just, you know, blunt force. And turn to chapter 10, look at verse 2. Verse 2, said, speaking of the Gibeonites, it says that they feared greatly. Because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities and because it was greater than Ai and all the men thereof were mighty. So, it wasn't that they weren't capable of fighting. And that verse makes it clear they were very capable of fighting. Gideon, or Gibeon has a, their strategy is that brains are better than brawn. They decide they're going to come up with a, a scheme. They know that no matter how skilled the warriors they are, that's not going to be good enough. And they also know, uh, look down at verse number 24, Joshua 9.24, says, And they answered, Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how that the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land. So they know that they are going to certainly be destroyed. They don't have any question about it. They're not even suspecting it. They know that that is what Israel's intentions are. So they come up with this scheme rather than unite with all the other tribes that they're going to, to put on this front. They're going to act as though they are willing to become the, well, they actually are willing to become the servants of Israel, but they, they are putting on a, on a, they're being deceitful. They're acting as though they are from a far country, from a strange land. They probably are very well aware of God's word that, that God had, had uh, you know, we've gone over the verses in Deuteronomy chapter seven and, and, and chapter twenty a couple of times, so we're not going to turn back to them. But God had made it clear to Israel that they were not to seek peace. They were not to make peace with the groups of people that were inside the promised land, but that they were allowed to and, and actually encouraged to seek peace with people outside the promised land. You remember one of the, the things that's mentioned here is the this the fights that Israel had with Heshbon and, and Og and those kings in, in Sihon and uh, what they what but they had actually sought peace in those cases. It's just that those those people groups weren't receptive to it and that's why they were destroyed. And so these these Gibeonites, they know that that this is their their best chance, maybe their only chance of survival. They come as ambassadors, representatives of the highest rank, representatives of the king and of course, you know, this is all done to make Israel feel very important. Flattery is often very effective in, in doing that. It, you know, flatter someone in order to get on their good side and, and get them to see your point of view. Verse number five, they even, you know, they go all out in this deceit. They make it look like their only food is old and rotten. And, you know, of course they put on their worst clothes and, and their clothes are ragged and patched and, you know, they're, they're, they've kind of, they've really thought this thing through. And notice in verse number six, they go straight to the top. They go to Joshua and the leaders. They know who's in charge. Uh, how many times have we probably gone to a, uh, purchase an automobile and we, we sit there for a half hour and then the person comes and says, well, let me go get somebody who actually has some authority. And you know, you just want to say, you just wasted a half hour of my time. Why didn't you? But they, they don't do that. They go to Joshua right from the beginning. They know who's who's calling the shots and who makes the decisions. In verse number seven, the Israelites start to ask questions. They ask uh if, if we let you dwell among us, what type of agreement are you looking for? In other words, they know that uh, you know, they know what the rules are. They know Israel knows that if if these people aren't really who they say they are that if they're from afar you know that if they're from actually within the borders of the promised land that they are to be destroyed so they begin asking questions and and it seems that they are suspicious we see in verse number 8 Joshua you know they start asking the questions uh, you know one question that I have throughout this chapter and you know throughout really this the entire study of everything pertaining to the gibeonites is who volunteers to be a servant? You know, why are they volunteering to be servants? And it, it doesn't really appear that that question is asked. Um, you know, why why didn't somebody say to them, "If you're from a far country, why didn't you just stay in the far country? Well, I mean, why are you here? Why are you volunteering to be our servants?" You know, again, the 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 the, the commands from God are to destroy those that are within the the you know the the promised land and so if they were truly from outside the promised land that should have been one of the questions why volunteer to be a servant and that that really doesn't seem to make a lot of sense and Joshua asks the right questions there in verse number eight he says who are you and and where are you from but he doesn't suspect that they're lying about the answers or it seemingly doesn't there's no indication that he suspects they're lying about the answers he just kind of takes what they say what they say at, at face value and you know today we, there's been a lot of uh, coverage in the news about falsification of resumes we 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 several times in the last few years we're we're hearing about coaches who are hired to coach university football teams and and they've claimed they've got a degree from such and such and it comes out later that they don't have any type any such degree and and then you know it really makes the the universities look bad. You know it makes the search committee look really bad. People ask, well, how in the world did you not verify something that was so simple? You could have simply called up this university that they claim to have a degree from and checked on that. But nevertheless, that we you know that's happened more times than we would think. You know, I mean particularly in this you know age where information is so easily available and accessible, and yet this type of thing still happens. Another thing that i I noticed uh, they never mentioned the name of the country they're from I don't know if that's simply a you know an oversight that that they didn't ask the question of, of where they were from um, you know I'm not a police officer i would I would guess Roman Hutton would probably tell you you know police officer training 101 would be separate these people and start asking them a lot of questions and see if their stories are the same I mean that seems to seems to work a lot of times. You know, you get people separated and you start asking enough questions and all of a sudden, you know, you start poking holes in a story and and, you know, the stories don't add up. And we do that with our children. You know, we ask them a lot of questions and they get frustrated. But, you know, we're trying to discern whether or not we're getting the real story or the complete story. So, I mean, I understand that, you know, hindsight's... Obviously, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight, but it does seem that... It seems like Israel really could have rooted this thing out, you know, that they, they just really didn't do a good job of, of investigating and, you know, kind of have egg all over their face. But verse number 10, these Gibeonites admit that they know that Israel had destroyed the people outside of Canaan on the east side of the Jordan River. Uh, wisely, they don't mention Jericho or Ai because that was a very recent thing. And if, you know, if their story is that they've come from a far land, Well, they would have been, they would have been away when those battles had taken place. And so, you know, that probably would have been a dead giveaway that they were lying if they would have known about Jericho and AI. But they don't mention that. They're mentioning the things that have happened, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. Things that have, the news has gotten around and, and it has become common knowledge throughout much of the world. The, the miracles that have been performed and, you know, the, the things that God did for Israel as they were leaving Egypt. So, I mean, they they do have you know they've they've kind of thought this thing through they've got it probably somewhat well rehearsed so in verse number eleven it seems like you know I mean something starting to smell fishy Joshua probably wondered you know uh, again you know why bother why why'd you come why not just stay in a far country if that's really where you're from. But, you know, they continue the charade. In verse 12, they use the old bread to convince Joshua that their journey had been long. And in verse 13, they, they go all out. They, they again, with the wine and the clothes and the shoes, they convince their Joshua that their journey had been very long. And of course, in verse number 14, we see that the Israelites, you know, as, as we would say today, you know, they, they bought the story hook, line, and sinker. They, they fell for it. I mean, they, you know, again, they they thought they had done their homework. It 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 says there in verse fourteen, and the men took of their victuals. It's like, you know, they inspected them, and indeed, yeah, they're old, and so you know, they just they just kind of believe them. But many of us aren't that perceptive. Some of us aren't as easy at detecting and and you know rooting out this type of deception as others. I know when. Uh, When we came to this church 10 years ago, I think we were here about a week, and my wife said, you know, that that S is upside down. I don't know how many of you noticed about a week ago, Roger Brown fixed it. It had been upside down for about 10 years, or who knows how much longer before that. I never noticed it. I couldn't tell the difference. But some people are better at detecting those little subtle differences, those little things. So... Turn to Proverbs thirteen seven. Proverbs chapter thirteen verse seven. We may find it easy to point the finger at the point the finger at the Gibeonites and. See them as deceptive, but how many of us are guilty of what happens in what, what is addressed here in Proverbs thirteen seven? Says there is that maketh himself rich yet hath nothing. There is that maketh himself poor yet hath great riches. In other words, people are not always what they seem. How many of us are guilty of exaggerating our circumstances? I know I've I've heard a lot of people say, you know, I, I just don't have any money for retirement. Now, they may not have as much as they think they need, but it's probably a little bit of an exaggeration in, in a lot of people's case to say they don't have anything or to, to, to greatly understate how much they have. Um, you know, we've got to be careful. We've got to, both ways, we've got to be careful that what we say, because people may take us at face value. They may just believe what we say. On the other hand, we can't always believe what other people say. We can't necessarily take it at face value. It's a matter of perspective. Some people, one person may not have nearly as much set aside for retirement as the next, but they perceive their circumstances to be so much differently than the other person. You know, it's, it's it's a matter of perspective. And you know, some people run around and they've got the attitude, you know, the sky is falling and I'm in dire straits. Be careful about that. Be careful about portraying yourself in that particular type of a, a situation. You know, on one hand, that's, uh, you know, that's dishonoring the Lord. If He's provided for you, He may not provide. He may not have provided for you in the in the way that you think would allow you to live in the lap of luxury. But that doesn't mean the Lord hasn't provided for you. And that's great. You're being greatly unthankful to misrepresent your circumstances and to to try to paint yourself, portray yourself as in, in dire straits when, when in reality, there may be a whole lot of other people that are that are just you know they're not in as good a shape as you are, and yet they're they they don't have that attitude. They have a different perspective. They're very thankful for what the Lord has done. And I know it's easy to get discouraged. I I know in the last few weeks in in my situation. You know, the the washing machine breaks down, the the laundry room drain is clogged, the stoves broke down, the cars broke down. All these things seem to happen within a matter of a week or two, and I can get very discouraged. But you know, I have to catch myself. I say, no, wait, wait a minute. The Lord is good. What in the world do I have to be complaining about? I mean, you I, just can't. That's that's the that's the devil, causing you to think that way. Causing you to get down and complain. We've got a lot to be thankful for, but it's again it's easy to get discouraged. I think of James chapter one, verses one and two. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. That's kind of hard to do sometimes. But that that means you know, do we not think that financial trials are included in that? Are we not supposed to count those trials joy also? In James chapter one verses three and four, God says He wants to use those trials to make us better, not bitter. Better. He wants us to, to be perfect. And in James chapter one verse five, it says, "If you need wisdom, ask God for it, and He'll give it to you." And you know, we need wisdom to understand why God is causing us to go through some of the trials and and tribulations that He sends our way. But that doesn't mean that we're to be discouraged. That we're to be you know murmurers and complainers. Oftentimes, when I when I have a tendency to get that way, you know, I just think about Job. I just think Job lost a whole lot more than I have. He had to go through a whole lot more than I have, and yet when he came through it, he was commended of the Lord. And I think, wow, given my piddly little circumstances in comparison to what Job had to go through, I would hope that the, that I would be able to come through victorious, and that the Lord would be able to commend me and say. You know, he was faithful. He trusted me. He, he didn't. You know, he didn't resort to all of those, you know, those negative things that Job's three friends accused him of. You know, we've got to be very careful about that. Turn back to Proverbs chapter three. Now, of course, we read in uh, Joshua chapter nine that they didn't. That they didn't ask counsel of the Lord. They they failed to pray. And in Proverbs chapter three, uh, verses five and six, boy, if you haven't memorized these verses, these are, these are, you know, there's, there's not many verses that I would think that are be more beneficial to memorize than these. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding and all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. We're told there in, in Joshua chapter nine, verse 14, that they didn't pray. They didn't ask counsel of the Lord. Why didn't they? Anybody want to venture a guess? And I mean, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong answer. I can think of five. I can think of at least five reasons why they may not have prayed. I think the, the question is the same for us. Why don't we pray more often? Why don't we pray? Okay, because we think. Okay, yeah, they 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 just think it's not necessary. Okay. Anyone else, Dave? So, so you you say they forget? They forgot. And that that might be what, that might be it that might, They might have just forgot. Dwayne? Right, they were flattered. Got caught up in the circumstances. What other reasons do we fail to pray? Janelle? Okay. well and we we see joshua um you know the leader of the entire nation humanly speaking and and you know this is a lesson in that regard you know no matter how i would certainly make the argument in the, after just having gone through the first 9 chapters of the book that joshua was one that intimately walked with god and yet he failed to ask god's counsel in this matter so i mean that's just a good illustration a good indication of how No matter how intimately we've walked with God, we, we've got to continue to that. We can't get away and think, you know, wow, I'm the leader of an entire nation, you know, and I've, I've all of a sudden arrived and I've got all the answers. No, we've got to continue to seek the Lord. Dave. caught off guard and were they in a hurry you know and sometimes we get in a hurry and then then the next question would be well why were they in a hurry was there there was even any good reason to be in a hurry Why, why couldn't they have taken however much time they felt is necessary to consult the Lord why couldn't they have taken as much time as was necessary to do a further investigation they could have sent people to that country that these people had claimed to have been from Why, why, why were, why did they feel pressured to make an immediate decision? And sometimes we feel that way. You know, I remember the advice I got from someone. They said, you know, my wife and I decided a long time ago that when it came to major purchases, we were going to, we were going to wait a week before we made that purchase. And he says, you know, it's amazing how many times a week later we thought, we don't even want that anymore. But, you know, they wanted it right then, right there at the, at the, you know, in the heat of the moment, at the time when the, the salesman was putting on the pressure and making the pitch a lot of times we get in a hurry and we don't there's no justification there's no reason to be in a hurry what other reasons do we fail to pray feel yeah 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 do a, do a further investigation what else about laziness praying is hard work I mean, it's easy to get up in the morning and say Lord bless me give me a great day and you know if that's all you do that's better than nothing but God wants much more than that um, to pray specifically, and earnestly, there's a lot of work to think through things and to, to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I need wisdom in this area, and I've got this option, and I've got that option, and to think through those things, and to, uh, you know, I think that's what, one of the reasons that some people, that, that many of us don't pray, is it just it's hard work. I mean, look at the Lord Jesus when he prayed. You know, he had tears of blood or you know, sweat drops of blood, and and, you know, it says that he prayed for a long time. I mean, it wasn't something that you could just throw out a, a few words or, or a phrase or, or a sentence. Uh, it, you know, praying is hard work. What other reasons? Rhonda. Right, right. Yeah, they thought they were in control. <laughs> They had it. They had. They had the answer. Now, I I would imagine a lot of people don't pray because they don't believe in the power of prayer. They don't believe that God cares or that God is able to answer their prayer. Um, And you know, the, the 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 remedy for that is to pray and see and put God to the test and see if He'll answer your prayers. And He will. And then that will give you, you know, the incentive to continue to pray later as you see God continue as you see God work. He may not give you the answer that you you were wanting, but that doesn't mean He isn't going to answer your prayer. So yeah, there's a lot of reasons why they may not have prayed. Well, in verse number 15, going on in Joshua chapter 9, they do agree, they're all deceived. Um, And you know, one of the things I wonder, how many were there those that... uh, did have reservations about this, but they didn't speak up. How many times do we find ourselves in that situation? You know, where we've got an opportunity to voice a concern. We don't. And then, you know, later on we say to ourselves, why didn't I say something? And, you know, if we would have said something, there probably would have been some other people who would have said, you know, that's a, good, that's a good point. Or at least talked through that and said, you know, that's a valid concern. I didn't think of that. But many times, you know, we get fearful and we get scared and we think, well, I don't want to say anything because of what other people might think. And so then, you know, and and come to, you know, come to find out later, a lot of people say, you know, I was thinking the same thing. But nobody wants to say anything. And it's a good lesson not to just remain silent, you know. Now, they foolishly, they don't include an exception clause. You know, they make this agreement and they don't say, you know, if if, if we find out that your story isn't true, then the whole the whole. The whole deal is off. They could have done that. That's what Moses did. Several weeks ago, we spent whole lesson in Numbers chapter 32, when Moses made the promise to the two half tribes, they had come to Moses and he said, We want this land on the east side of the Jordan River, and, and we just really wanted it. And Moses says, Okay, you can have it. He said, but, but you can have it in these conditions. He says, You're going to go, you're going to cross the river, you're going to fight, you're going to do everything that you're expected to do. And if you do all that, only if you do all that, then you can come back and have land. But Moses was very careful to make that promise condition. They, they don't do that here. That's why, that's why they're stuck. They just, they just agree that they're going to go ahead and spare their lives, but they don't say. You know, they don't say, "Well, you know, we've got to, we're going to agree to this on the condition that we find out that what you're saying is true." Now, I work for an insurance company. Every policy that we issue has that clause. Every policy says, "If we find out that that the information that you put on this application is fraudulent, that it's that you falsified the information, then we rescind the policy." It certainly, affect the the rates for for which your premium, your monthly premiums would be. So, you know, and that's just. We're very used to doing that in our country. We're used to having exception clauses built in so that the contract's null and void if, if people don't keep up their end of the bargain. They didn't there's no indication that they did any any of that here. And that's why they end up getting stuck. Now in verse number sixteen, they that's they find out. Three days later the facts come out. They realize they've been fooled. And so in verse number seventeen they go to the cities, they go to the cities of the Gibeonites, they do Now they're, they're doing, uh, you know, a little bit more homework. And, but in verse number 18, the Israelites, yeah, that's their conclusion. Yep, we can't harm them. We made this agreement. We made this treaty. We're bound by it. We took an oath to the Lord. We didn't have an exception clause. And so, you know, there's nothing we can do. We're, we're bound by it. Now in verse number 18, it says the, at the end of the verse, it says, and all the congregation murmured against the princes. Now, Most of the commentators that I, that I read, uh, think that the only reason the people murmured was because of how greedy they were, that they, that they just wanted the stuff. They wanted to spoil the cities of the Gibeonites, and so they wanted the stuff like the stuff they had taken from the city of Ai. Now, I don't necessarily see it that way. Maybe I'm not as cynical as most of those commentators. I I think some of these people were probably genuinely concerned that, you know, they were being disobedient to the Lord. Again, maybe I'm a little naive in that regard, but I, I don't know that, you know, that I, I just I'm not sure that it was the stuff that they were after, and that that's the reason that they were complaining. But nevertheless, that's what they're doing. They they complain to the leadership. Again, you know, um, whether or not there was an open door policy, as you know, as we use those words. I mean, you know, did these people have concerns that they uh, didn't feel they were, you know? able to voice before this you know did they kind of see what was going on and thought you know wow our leaders are clueless they don't know what they're doing but i i don't really have you know i don't really feel it's my place to go and ask questions and you know i mean that's why a lot of you know that's one of the you know one of one of the things that is taught today you know that if you're going to be an effective leader you have to have an open-door policy You have to let those that are your inferiors know that they can come to you and talk to you if they have legitimate concerns and Again, we don't know whether that was the case, but nevertheless, the people are disgruntled. They feel that their, their leadership has, has failed in this regard. Now in verse number 19, that's, you know, the leaders make it clear our hands are tied. You know, what a lesson. I mean, they have an obligation to keep a promise made under false pretenses, you know, and yet today, how many of us, you know, are we just as committed to making, keeping our promises that are made under you know, honest pretenses, you know, where everything's done on the up and up. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a good lesson for us that we have to honor our commitments, especially those that were made, you know, without any deception. I think of a certain architect. Why are you laughing, Ross? <laughs> you know, we've had, we've had an architect over the years that the church has dealt with that things haven't always gone so well with. But you know ultimately we you know we had a set of plans we didn't use, but we still had to pay the architect. And you know looking back on it, um, I, I think what was done was the right thing. The thing that was done was to protect the, the name of the Lord, was to protect the reputation of the, of the Lord. It's the Lord's name that we didn't want to dr- have dread you know, drug through the mud. And so you know, yeah, are there regrets? You know, does it you know does it always feel so good? in those cities? no, but you know you you move on. You make the best of the situation as as it is. You know you can't go back and undo it. And so that's that's what was done years ago. In Second Samuel twenty one, we're not going to turn there, but in Second Samuel twenty one, Saul violated this agreement over four hundred years later. He tried to exterminate the Gibeonites. Thinking that he was being zealous for the Lord. In reality, the Lord came down hard on him and, and, uh, Israel was under a famine for three years and David inquired of the Lord why they were under a famine. And the Lord said because Saul tried to exterminate the Gibeonites. He broke the oath that was made over 400 years earlier. And so that was when seven of the sons of Saul were given to the Gibeonites and they were hanged as a result of that. And, you know, again, there's a, there's a good lesson there. You know, God expected this agreement to be honored 400 years later. Expects us to keep our, our agreements, especially when we're going to take an oath in his name. And in verse number 20, that's what the people are concerned about. That's what the leaders are saying. They're saying, you know, we're concerned about the wrath of God. We cannot advocate breaking this oath. We don't want to incur the wrath of God. We've got to, we've got to keep our word. Now, they do go ahead and decide they're going to put the Gibeonites into hard bondage. But the Gibeonites are happy to do this. They know that the God of Israel will not allow them to be mistreated. I think they probably pretty well knew that. You know, there's a lot of laws that were given about the treatment of, of the stranger and the servants. And, you know, they know, they knew that, I mean, what was their alternative? <laughs> Certain death. I mean, you know, they actually, they look pretty, pretty smart in this whole situation. Deceptive, but nevertheless, um, you know, they, they saved their lives. Verse number 22, Joshua confronts them about their biggest lie, where they were from. And in verse number 3, as a result of that, they are under the curse. And Joshua called for them, and, he, er, and now therefore you are cursed. And there shall none of you be freed from being bondmen, and hewers of wood, and drawers of water, for the house of my God. And this is a fulfillment of the... This is a partial fulfillment of the the prediction that that, uh, Noah had made back in Genesis chapter 9 where he said the descendants of Ham and Canaan were going to be under the curse and that they were going to be servants to Shem. And that's what's happening here. Now, I I thought it was interesting. I was reading online uh, some things about the Gibeonites and even today in Israel, 2013, it says the Gibeonites are treated differently than the other Jews in Israel. Now, I would have thought, I don't know how they ever keep track of who's who and, you know, how they know who's a descendant of who. I I always find that somewhat puzzling, but, you know, maybe they do. Maybe they, they, maybe they know, but, but that's, you know, even to this day, they're, they're looked down upon. They're, they're viewed in a negative light. They're not held in the same regard as a, as a, as a, you know, someone that isn't a Gibeonite. So that curse has lived on. And uh, in 1 Kings chapter 3 and in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, when Solomon was king, the tabernacle and the altar were at Gibeon. And, and of course, that was to allow the Gibeonites to supply wood for the many sacrifices. And I mean, this was hard work. I, You know, a month or so ago, I, I was watching Roger Brown chop wood. Now, he kind of made it look easy, but for most people, it's not easy. It's hard work. And, you know, that's why you read there in, in the book of 1 and 2 Kings, some of those sacrifices that Saul had, you know, involved thousands of animals. And so, you know, that was, that was quite a feat to provide wood and water for all of that. But that's what, they were, that's what they were doomed to. Now, in 2 Samuel 24, 14, again, we're not going to turn there, but you recall David, uh, you know, in choosing his punishment for numbering the people, he said, it is better to fall into the hand of the Lord than the hand of man, for the Lord's mercies are great. Certainly, uh, Gibeon experienced that. Uh, you know they, they that's you know they, again, they know that they're not they're not going to be mistreated so much. Now, the question, you know and I don't know, you know that there's a definitive answer, but if the Gibeonites had faith of faith at all to, you know, how genuine was their faith? Um, we don't see the same types of statements made by the Gibeonites that we see. Of, for example, like a Rahab or a Ruth, um, you know, in Joshua two nine, Rahab said, "I know that the Lord hath given you the land." I mean, she was making her proclamation of her own faith in the Lord. It was personal. And in Joshua, or in, yeah, in Joshua two eleven, she said, "For the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and in earth beneath." Give you an They never do that. It doesn't seem that they go that far. Take a look closer at at verse number 24 here in chapter 9. It says, And they answered Joshua and said, Because it was certainly told thy servants how the Lord thy God commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. Again, maybe I'm splitting hairs, but they never actually said that they believed the Lord. They just say they believed that Moses believed the Lord. I mean, there is a difference. I think. And notice at the end of the verse. We were sore afraid of our lives because of you. They're, they're fearful of the Israelites, but they never actually say that they fear the Lord. So, you know, when you really begin to look, it doesn't appear as though they are embracing the Lord and, and are demonstrating faith in the Lord like someone like Rahab or someone like Ruth who said to Naomi, Your God will be my God. They, they don't go that far. And even if they had, there's always a cloud of suspicion that would be cast on everything that they said, because why? They've come with deception. It's like our children. They lie to us once, and then they might tell us 20 wonderful things, but we don't know which one to believe. It's like when people show up to the church looking for a handout. You know, they've got a story about how they've, you know, they've placed their faith in the Lord, but then when you begin to press them, they, they don't demonstrate that there's any substance to that. You know, then it becomes clear they're just here for the stuff. They're just looking for a handout. I mean, you know, like, like we always hear the pastor say, the easiest way to get rid of them is to just say, well, why don't you come to the next church service and then we'll talk about it. And that gets rid of 95% of them right there. Because they, they just, you know, they, their faith isn't genuine. So again, I don't know to what extent. Uh, now certainly, later on, I mean... The Gibeonites, they are near the tabernacle. They are providing the wood and the water for the tabernacle. Certainly some of them, you know, they had the privilege of being close to the Lord. And no doubt some of them came to true faith in the Lord. So, I mean, you know, there's certainly a, a silver lining to this story. But, you know, there's there's a lot, of, a lot of deception and suspicion, unfortunately, that goes along with it. All right, we're about out of time. Anyone have any closing thoughts or comments that they want to add? All right, well thank you, you're dismissed.